Grow Great is a city government leadership podcast with Lisa Norris and me, Randy Cantrell. Each week we share insights, experiences, and wisdom to help you and your leadership grow great. Our website is growgreat.com. We are here today with another guest of our show, which Randy and I love because we get to do less talking and more listening. Uh, But for the listeners, we're so happy to have Courtney Reynolds on with us today. She does work at the city of Grand Prairie. I know our listeners are shocked (laughs) because we bring a lot of people on that work with our city. But Courtney, what I love most is you're in a neat, unique position that probably many of our listeners don't have at their cities, um, but could benefit from. And uh, we hired you in 2018 to help us with our mental health kind of crisis. This was pre-COVID. Thank goodness we Mm -hmm. had you because I know we needed you, especially during that time. But the community mental health was a big issue that not only our police department and our first responders had to assist with and need really needed some resources and ways to help the mental health in our community. Um, so we're so pleased to have you on the show. I won't give it all away, but I will turn it over you uh, to you to tell the listeners a little bit about your, your role in our police department um, and then how you got there. And then we'll talk as we go through the show about how you not only benefit just the department, the officers in our community, but how you've assisted our city as a whole in when we've had crises that have occurred. It's all yours. All right. Well, good morning. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the introduction for having me today. So um, I am a licensed professional counselor supervisor. I born and raised in this area, grew up in the, the DFW Metroplex. So this is home. Um, a little bit about how I got started. So I actually started uh, way back in the day as a dispatcher, um, decided mental health is really the, the track I wanted to go. And ironically, there was a clinician riding out with one of the officers in the city I worked for at that time. And so I was like, please, can I pick his brain? So I did and come to find out there was actually a program through an organization called My Health, My Resources here in Tarrant County. And they had liaisons that worked with um, law enforcement all throughout the county. And I was like, wow, that's my dream job. Um, So they uh, had an opening, they hired me, and that's kind of where this, this journey has started. At the time, mental health embedded in law enforcement was not really a thing. It wasn't something anybody really talked about. And so what we did at that time was we went to the chiefs and we said, if you could think of a mental health liaison working with your officers, what would that be? And they said, be out in the field with us. And so that's what we did. We started finding officers in these different agencies that were interested. We would go follow up with them. We would help them learn about mental health. We did a lot of trainings. And it's kind of really taken off. Um, we uh, There was another city that, that initially wrote a grant to hire a mental health professional within the departments because the conversation at the time was we really need to look at having somebody embedded within your department and not just using a county resource because the more they started to use us, the more stretched than we were and then we weren't able to respond and it just wasn't as productive as it needed to be. And so... They finally were able to do that. They wrote a grant um, and started a collaboration with three cities. And so I think after that, really the word started to spread, the chief started to talk and 
uh, Grand Prairie actively recruited me um, from, from the cities I was working for at the time. And I've been over here since uh, June of, of 2018, so almost five years now. It's crazy. But uh, I was initially hired to start our community program. So we really looked at, you know, mental health calls are one of the most dangerous calls that officers respond to. And so, you know, how, how can we work to understand kind of mental illness and what that looks like? And officers have become our de facto social workers. We've deinstitutionalized. Law enforcement's now thrown into this role of, make a split decision, understand what's going on, read the situation and respond to it effectively 100% of the time. And so, you know, de-escalation has become something that we hear a lot about and mental health is something we hear a lot about. And so um, that's really what I was hired to do is let's train our officers. Let's be out in the field with our officers. Let's put social workers and counselors and mental health clinicians out in the field to help respond to these situations and not only respond to the situations, but then also help to coordinate resources on the back end, because the mental health system can be really difficult to navigate and to take somebody in the throes of crisis and expect them to then navigate a system that's historically difficult. It's really a lose-lose situation. And so um, we try to be very proactive and, um, you know, get to somebody pre-crisis but should we get to them post-crisis, we also try to lead to that resource in hopes that, or in hopes that they'll have maybe a better outcome on the back end and, and not have another interaction with law enforcement. And that, you know, I, I appreciate that so much. So we, we weren't the first city to do this, but we are one of the first cities um, to actually have that housed in our department, not just sending them out to resources in our community, but to have a program internally serving the police department and the community um, that those officers respond and try to serve themselves. Now, before we get into the details of kind of the different programs and our grants and stuff that I think the listeners will enjoy, I know your position has evolved and that beyond community, you're doing so much work now to work against the stigma that if an officer themselves needs mental health resources or assistance and, you know, for what they've seen for a crisis, for a shooting, whatever that is. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how that's evolved and what you're doing for the officers and our first responders as a whole? Um, and then let's talk about a little bit about how you it's migrated. And now we're calling you citywide saying, can you help us in this moment? Because you're available almost much more easily than our EAPs can respond because of the, like you said, the stretch that we just, them just trying to find somebody that can come on site for a crisis has gotten difficult over the years. Yeah, definitely. You know, so there is a stigma um, against mental health and there has been for a really long time, but within this first responder population, there's even more of a stigma. They're supposed to suck it up. That's the old school mentality, right? You suck it up, you move on. They're the strong ones. Um, and, and I don't think a lot of times people understand the sheer magnitude of events that they respond to. And so we've done a lot of um, training and informational sessions on understanding that secondary or vicarious trauma, experiencing trauma through the eyes and the ears of the people that we serve is just as real and is just as impactful as you being the primary victim of trauma. So you actually experiencing the trauma yourself. And so 
Um, I think just really working to have those conversations. Ironically, what I found is officers would come and talk to me about somebody in the community because they were feeling me out, right? Who is this? Who is this counselor? Who is this foreigner, right, in our world? And so um, as they started talking to me about what's going on in the community, I think we were able to build that trust and gain that rapport. And then they would ask for a friend. So I have a family member, I have a friend who might be going through this and, you know, maybe get some advice there. And then slowly and surely, we've started to have these conversations of, man, that call was really hard, right? And so um, I think that just the natural evolution of those conversations is what helped my position kind of involve, evolve and see that, yes, we need to serve our community, but if we have healthy first responders, they're going to make even better decisions than they're already making, and they're going to better serve our community. So let's look at taking care of our own so that we then can take care of everybody else. And so um, when I first started, I got thrown into a conversation about a grant that was available. And they said, is this something we would be interested in? And, and where I come from, I'm not used to being able to just make all these decisions. And so I was like, sure, that sounds great. And I'm, I'm reaching out and I'm asking all these, these people that are higher up than me. And they're like, look, you're the expert. You just make it happen. And I'm like, okay, this is a whole new world for me, right? <laughs> um, so we did. Go, and, for, go forth and do. Absolutely. I mean, I will. <laughs> that's, a, that's our mentality. Go forth and do. I, figure it out. You can do it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, goodness. Uh, where's my counselor, right? So um, I think that we entered into, at that point, a grant with nine different cities. And it was police, fire, EMS, dispatch. Um, and we partnered with an organization that was outside. And really what that grant allowed us to do was to bring in somebody that wasn't me, that wasn't somebody they saw every day. And we started to do a lot of trainings. We started to help our first responders understand the brain and understand how the brain processes trauma. So now it's not that you as a first responder is weak or that you as a first responder can't handle these calls. It's understanding that your brain's doing what your brain's supposed to do and your brain's not supposed to see and experience the things that you see and experience time and time and time again. And so I think that just starting those conversations has really normalized that, okay, maybe this isn't just a me thing. Maybe this is truly a neurological thing. Um, so that grant also provided us the ability to do free counseling. So we had a third party. Um, if a first responder wanted to go to counseling, they could click on it a link. It was anonymous. The counseling was paid for. Um, historically, we don't like to use our insurance. We think that Big Brother's watching us and people are going to know. So we really tried to take all of those, those barriers away um, from our team. So that was really impactful. It was also really nice to be able to train with other cities. And so now we have relationships with first responders from all, all nine of these cities. So if there's an incident, I can now call on another city to maybe come and help. Or I can say, hey, let me run this by you. This is what I've got going on here. This is kind of what I think is happening. Um, how do you guys do it there? And so that's been a huge perk for us too, is just that collaboration because these programs are starting to, to come up and they're, and they're starting to grow, but it's still a very small group of us that have these programs. And so there are not a lot of say conferences or networking that we can do because we're still such a small group and we really needed to be able to, to lean on one another. So that's, that was the, that's what made the grant, I think really helpful, but the evolution of this since 
since that grant took over and since we've started to be able to have these conversations, I would say my job has really shifted to almost 60 to 70% wellness and resiliency and having these conversations. Whereas two years ago, it probably was 60 to 70% talking about the community. So it's been a natural shift. That's awesome. And what was the name just for those interested? Do we first, do we still have the grant or because those can go away? Um, but secondly, is the program still functioning even without the grant? And and for those listening, for city managers, uh, other chiefs that are listening in, kind of kind of walk us through just lightly, you know, how, how they would start something like that and what resources they would need. Do they need a mental health professional to be on staff? Can they use other resources? Because we're fortunate to have you. Not all cities have that, as we've talked about. So... Yes. Um, to brag on Grand Prairie, we are the only one of the nine cities that has a mental health professional. Um, and I think that we have seen higher utilization because we do. So I do think that that is a perk um, to have somebody who can speak that language and help navigate those resources. Um, as far as the grant is, we no longer have that grant. Um, and we actually lost it this year. But even without that grant, this program is still functioning because we had the, the bare bones in place. We already had the foundation and the fundamentals there. Um, was the, how long was that grant, Courtney? It was a three-year grant. Okay. Yeah, so we... Um, so it did help to get it started. Yes. Like you said, to get it established, it served its purpose. It did. It did. The, the ironic thing about it is we lost it. Um, and, and there was another city that was actually the city that was the lead on that grant and they don't have a mental health professional. And so they really felt like they were going to lose a lot of things by not having it. So they went to, um, the County and Dallas County actually used COVID money, ARPA funds to, um, they have a million dollars worth of funds that they have now pushed out to any Dallas County city to fund, a, to continue to fund a program like that grant. So the county saw that the grant funding is gone, but we feel like this is an important thing. And so um, they're going to turn around and, and supplement some of that money on the back end to help all of these other cities who need assistance in first responder mental health. And there's also several grants out there for first responder mental health right now. And so I think that really the time is now to kind of jump on it and, and write these grants. And in writing these grants, you can, um, you know, you don't have to have a mental health professional, but it certainly helps. Right. Um, in order and I think that's great because it shows you it doesn't have to necessarily be city money. Now, it may be city money long term mm -hmm. or it may be supplemented with city dollars, but there are funding sources that cities can go research. Uh, and we have listeners in other states, um, they may have grants as well. And the ARPA money kind of kind of went for everybody. I mean, it's out there for so many right now that they have funds sitting there trying to determine what they're gonna use it for. So I think that's a great uh, immediate opportunity if those funds are still available and the city's listening. So thanks for sharing that. So now, as, as we talked about the evolution uh, and you're helping more officers, I, you know, my question would be as a as a professional uh, licensed mental health professional, is there a line that you have to be careful you cannot cross that our that our listeners would need to know about as a counselor versus helping your department? And what is that line, if any? 
Yeah, great question. There is a line. <laughs> um, there is a, a very distinct line. So I cannot provide counseling services to a coworker. It's a dual relationship in order for me to do so. Um, so we do a couple of different things. I can do peer support. So I can sit down with you and in the midst of a crisis, we can kind of walk through that event and, and help normalize some of the feelings and, and give you maybe some coping and, and some different things to try. Um, which we, uh, which I love here about Grand Prairie too, is we are actually in the process of training all of our officers in the peer-to-peer. -peer. So it won't just be me that can do that. It won't just be our formalized peer support team, but everybody is going to be trained as a peer because really that's where the magic happens, right? It happens after that call when they're having that conversation. And so um, we can have that. We um, I can provide you to, to one of my biggest things that I do, since I can't be your counselor, I can vet counselors. And so because I understand what the counseling relationship should look like, because I understand what the law enforcement world looks like, it's very hard to find a counselor that can work in both. This is a very unique set of individuals, first responders. Um, and so finding a counselor that can either work with a first responder or even listen to the stories that the first responder is going to come in and talk to talk about is huge. We have first responders that tell me I went to counseling and my counselor started crying and said, I can't, I can't hear this. I can't see you. And so that's one of the things that I do is I go out and I spend time with these resources in our community that say that they provide counseling to first responders. I utilize almost every single one of the programs before I recommend it to our team. So I've gone to a lot of counseling sessions um, to see how these counselors work. And so I think that, that that makes it really helpful. If an officer comes in and they need to get to counseling, I can kind of help handpick and help direct them to the resource that I think would be most appropriate for whatever it is that they have going on. The other side of that is because I am licensed by the state of Texas, conversations that they have with me have to remain confidential. So one of the hurdles is feeling like, well, if I come and talk to you and say the chief comes down and he's like, hey, has so-and-so been in your office? I can't answer that question. And I can't answer that question because the state of Texas says I can't. And so that I think helps kind of normalize some of that, but also minimizes the stress that the officers experience about, oh, well, if I do go talk to Courtney and I see chief down there, they all know that I can't say anything. And quite honestly, all the chiefs do too. We have a fantastic administration here that if I come to them and I say, hey, somebody's gonna be out on mental health leave, they don't ask me any questions because they know that I've got it, that I'm taking care of them, that I'm either working with them or I'm partnering with their counselor. And so I think just the fact that I speak the same language is helpful enough that they don't need to come to me for counseling nor do they want to, because they don't want to walk down the hall and see their counselor every single day who knows all the intimate details about their life. Um, they need to be able to come in here and have somebody kind of guide them to where they need to go. And the hope is that all the programs that we have in place, we can prevent them from having to go to counseling in the future. That's really what we're looking at. But if they need to, it's still normalized and they're willing to do it. Yeah. And I, you know, beyond, well, first, I think that the, the program and that line you cannot cross we've got, and we had Daniel on the show actually recently, Daniel Sesney, our police chief, but he, he's an amazing guy. And I know, you know, he has, he kind of shared his story uh, and his, how his life got him to policing and the challenges he had. And I know that he values the, the mental health and 
providing that to his officers because it's not just the crisis they see. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know that officers around the U.S. have a much higher divorce rate um, than than normal. They have uh, more issues of trying to communicate because of crisis uh, and because of their jobs. It's it's hard to go home and tell your your spouse or significant other everything that happened in your day. With my son being an officer for five years, I had no idea till after he left the force um, of what he saw in a day and had told my husband. And my husband's like, do not share that with your mother mm-hmm. because she would worry so much. And, and this is in a what I thought was a quiet community where we lived, right? But I did not realize every day what he saw. Yeah. You know, and the amount of fights he'd, you know, takedowns he'd been in and meth and guns. And it's just amazing what they see. And this is as a young kid. He can't undo that. Right. right? The things that he saw. So I think your role is absolutely critical in creating these programs, not only for your department, but in the community and and creating a psychologically safe place. Randy and I've talked a lot about that on various shows where it's integrated because psychological safety and having someone you can talk to in a safe place without knowing it's going to get out is so critical just generally. Um, But I know also, so we talked kind of about community and we'll dive into these much deeper here in a minute. You've talked a little bit about this line you can't cross uh, as a professional counselor, but you've also helped us. um, We've, and, and for our listeners, the value of having this mental health resource, and we have the chaplains mm-hmm. in the police department that have been helpful. We had some deaths that occurred in our city family, just in other departments, and departments were in crisis. And I know, Courtney, we we called you, and your team came over just to talk for those that needed it, just to like I guess you could kind of like your peer to peer, just to just to listen, you know, and be available to them to work through some feelings and things like that. How often does that kind of call get to your group from a citywide? Because I know we've used you several times in the last few years, but I'm curious of what that looks like on your side and how that benefits you and your team to get out to other departments. Yeah. So um, not only does our own city use our team, but we get called by other cities around the Metroplex quite often. I think I was looking at the numbers the other day, and I think in the past four years, I think we've been called to 18 different um, city governments in some capacity, be it a police department, fire department, or the city. Um, and I think that goes to show that having a mental health professional on staff is is needed. Um, so, you know, we do go over there, we help kind of just normalize feelings. I think that's what people are really wanting, right? A lot of times we don't know what to do when we're in that state of mind. And as human beings, we always want the right thing to say. We always want to take that pain away or have the right words that somehow make everything instantly better. And so we struggle when there is a crisis or there is a death or there is an event of what do I say and what do I do? And so that's really what our team is kind of here to do is sometimes we just got to hold that space for them. You know, we don't have the magic words but we can tell you these are the things to look for. We can tell you this is what the stages of grief are and and what to look for in yourself. Then we can also kind of help to see, okay, what are some things that I can do tonight to kind of help me? Because we we all have a resiliency strategy as human beings. We may not know that strategy is because we've never thought about it, 
But if we sit back and we think about it, we all have things that work for us. And so sometimes we just need to be reminded to tap back into that own resource that we already have. What works for you when you have a bad day? Let's use that same resiliency strategy and let's apply it to this situation because it's no different. It just hurts different or it hurts more um, than it did yesterday. And so it's really important for us to get out and meet with these different departments and, and meet with these other city um, city departments because we don't want them to just know us when there's a crisis. You know, it's hard to gain rapport with somebody if the only time you see them is when you're hurting. But if we already have that relationship and then we get brought in, it's like, oh, there's a familiar face, right? right. Okay. I've seen them before or they, they work for the city or they work for a police department. And so um, you kind of instantly have a little bit of, of rapport just by that alone. Um, but that's why our team too tries to work really hard in working with these other cities so that if we do get called or if there is an incident, we're walking into a situation where maybe they've seen us before and it hasn't always been in a tragedy. Yeah, it, it, I, I just so much appreciate it. Um, what you do for our department, uh, for our police department and our community and for our city family. Um, another added benefit, and I share this personally, I know we, you know, our family had a family member in crisis in the last couple of years. I remember I didn't have your phone number um, and I had emailed on us. It was, I think it was late on a Sunday night. And I was like, Hey, I don't even know if you can help, but I've got a family member in crisis and I don't know what to do. I, you know, they, they don't work for our city, obviously. So I can't refer them to an EAP here. Um, and I said, just, just give me a call when you can. And I remember like five minutes later, you're calling. And I was like, first, I didn't expect you to call me late <laughs> on a Sunday, but you were like a crisis is a crisis. Mm -hmm. You know, what's going on? How can I help? Mm -hmm. And I just remember there's no EAP that can do that. I mean, EAPs today, we have to wait 24 hours for a response. And when you're in crisis, that is not a good time frame, mm -hmm. right? But that's just because they're trying to find an available counselor and counselors are stretched like so many other industries. It's not that they don't want to serve us. They just can't do it as timely as you were available. And, and I just remember not only you helping me because I'm worried about a family member, but then you said, have that individual call me if they wish. And you would provide resources again, not here, but you knew people that we didn't know. Mm -hmm. And ultimately that family member did make contact and that resource worked. Um, and, and they are in a much better place because of it. Um, not even with our city. So that story alone, I just wanted to share because there are so many extended benefits of having a mental health professional. And when we're talking about this, there's so many funding opportunities. It doesn't have to just be city money. Um, I know your program has actually expanded. We've got, you've got a little help. <laughs> it's not, I mean, you're still yes. kind of a department of one, but you have resources available that, that help us. Um, so let's talk about that for a minute, how that's evolved from a staffing standpoint to, to demonstrate the need and it's proven itself. Can you yeah. share a little bit of how, how, how your department's grown? Yeah, um, I'm really excited about how our department's grown. So I'm actually a funded position, which I love. I came from a grant funded position, which don't get me wrong, I love grants and I think they're helpful, but they're also very limiting. And so we would not have been able to expand in the ways that we have 
had I been a grant funded position. And so I'm funded um, about a year after I got here, year, year and a half, something along those lines. Um, we actually hired a second mental health professional. So the way our, our team is structured, we're actually co-responders. So we have officers that are partnered with all of our clinicians because we are not going out into the community without an officer. Um, I'm a good talker, but I, my verbal skills don't always have something if somebody's coming at me physically, right? So I need that protection. Um, I call my officer, Greg, he's my bodyguard, right? He goes everywhere with me. Um, so we have, we now have two licensed clinicians and we have two officers as part of our team. And then we just recently got a grant funded third uh, mental health clinician position. Um, and we brought over one of our former dispatchers. So she already kind of knew our um, culture, which has been amazing. Um, and she's bilingual, which has also been a huge plus. So now we can serve even more of that community. The other licensed clinician I have is married to an officer. So we're all kind of embedded into this first responder world. Um, so that is kind of how our external positions are. Two of them are city funded. One of them is grant funded. And I think that what our city did was we looked at, we can't afford not to have this anymore. We're to a point where, you know, it, not only with the external program with our community, but also the internal. If you look at sick time abuse, if you look at workers' comp claims, if you look at um, the hiring crisis and how difficult recruiting and retention can be, I mean, just those things alone to create a culture of resiliency and wellness, it's going to naturally help all of those different aspects of a department. And so just creating that culture and having this, this mental health as part of our daily conversations, um, I really think that that's part of what's helped kind of shift the stigma here is it's not just something, it's not just a buzzword we throw out every once in a while. They see it and hear it every single day in some form or fashion, right? Um, so, you know, of course, we would love to have more. Of course, we would love to to grow and expand and and be able to touch more of our city departments um, because right now we are pulled between two different distinct roles, um, and so it's a balancing act. Um, so, I mean, I think the goal eventually would be to to try to to grow and to do more because I think that wellness and resiliency could be a completely full time position. You know, at some point, right? Mm -hmm. um, but also, we can't neglect the community and what we need to do there. And so we, we try to, to be healthy. We also serve our, our homeless population um, too, our team does. And so we're working to coordinate resources for that population um, and, and trying to help them overcome the barriers of, of homelessness. So to say that we stay busy is an understatement. <laughs> I don't sleep either, Randy. It's okay. <laughs> well, talk about those capacity issues. Yeah. I mean, are you I mean, how, how, can you quantify capacity? So that great question. It's hard um, because I can't put a number on what I head off, right? So I can't say in the community, we've headed off 50 suicides this month. And I can't say that I had five officers today that wanted to commit suicide, but through our conversations, they didn't. And so what we look to do is we look with our community program, we look to decrease the calls for service that patrol responds to. So if we have somebody that we have repeat calls for service to, but our team is able to intervene and they're either calling our team or they're getting connected to resources and patrol no longer gets called out to that location, to us, that's a win. 
but we may see an increase in number of people that are going to the hospital on that mental health hold because they're more aware, because our officers are more aware of mental health now, because they're better able to articulate that mental health crisis and we're better able to get somebody to that treatment. So we'll see an increase, but to me, that's still a win because we're getting more people where they need sure. to be versus not. So to be able to quantify that, um, that's really what the, the statistics show. I also like to see an increase in number of follow-ups completed by our team. So right now, our small little team, we do approximately 250 follow-ups a month, which is huge. We get approximately 100 new referrals to our team a month as well. So we stay really, really busy. Um, the internal program, so I'm looking for an increase in utilization which is another hard thing, right? Because of confidentiality, they can go use any counselor they want to. Um, so I may not know if they're going to counseling at all. We do have some funding where we can pay for counseling should they need it. And when that happens, we get an anonymous spreadsheet that's sent to us that says, this is how much you owe me this month. And the counselors we use know how to vet that they work for the city. So I don't ever have to know, right? So I'm able to track a little bit of utilization that way. Um, and then we have just recently started to try to track how many people at least come and talk to us just so that we know, but in full transparency, sometimes I have an office full of people a day and I forget to just make a tick mark on a spreadsheet and say, I talked to 10 people today. So, um, we're, we're working out the kinks of that as far as, you know, cause unfortunately, fortunately and unfortunately city government tends to be very statistics driven. And so, for me to just say I'm busy isn't always enough. So I'm trying to find ways to track that, but Quantify also it, yeah. it not being a way that people feel like, oh, well now Courtney's keeping track of how many times she talked to me. And, and so, cause that's not the case. I don't want names. I don't want any of that anywhere ever. And anybody that's talked to me knows I'm really big on, <laughs> on confidentiality and all of that. Um, especially with this new mental health leave policy that, mm -hmm. that's coming. I was out. just going to mention that because I think that would be helpful for the cities. Let, uh, I have one question before we dive yes. into the, that policy and how we collaborated between you, HR, and payroll to keep that highly confidential for our officers. But when you have officers come in and it needs to stay confidential, how do you deal with that is my first question. And as part of that, I want you to talk a little bit because many listeners may not know about this the suicide rates. I mean, that's very high in police, I think, as an industry, um, as a profession. So can you kind of talk about both of those and what you do in that area to try to help uh, our officers and how other cities can think about that so that they know those statistics are not good? Yeah, so the suicide rates have outnumbered the number of uh, line of duty deaths for quite some time now. And so you know, the state of Texas came out and said that we need to give mental health leave to first responders post-crisis. And another great thing I love about this city is we have um, we have defined crisis kind of in a in a broad way because while a crisis can be defined as a line of duty death or an officer involved shooting or a child death or something that we all would see as clearly that would be a traumatic event. Sometimes they may go to what's considered a routine call if there is one, 
but that may be the call that just sends them over the edge, right? And so I think that they've given me the autonomy to say, you know what, that may not be your typical traumatic call that we would see, but, but that call was traumatic to them because trauma is so individualized. And so with this new mental health leave policy, it's saying that after a traumatic event, we can give officers or first responders time off to take care of themselves. And um, the theory behind this, at least for our department, is if I make you take vacation and sick time to go take care of yourself, to go get your head back in the game, to work through that traumatic incident that you experienced at work, and you do that. And then in six months, you need to take a couple of days off to go on a vacation with your family to keep yourself healthy. And now you no longer have that time. It's counterproductive. And so if we've experienced a traumatic event, if we need to take a couple of days off to go to a counseling appointment or go use our resiliency strategy or whatever it is that we need to do, because we don't feel like we're at a safe space to come to work then now there's a separate leave bank that we can use in order to give them that time. And that all comes through our department um, for a multitude of reasons, A, because we can protect confidentiality, um, B, because we do understand mental health and kind of what that looks like, and to be transparent, to make sure that people don't abuse that program, because unfortunately, that can happen. And if we're allowing multiple people to issue mental health leave, and it's confidential, I may not know that this officer just got mental health leave and now they're coming to me. And so we're trying to cut down on, on the ability to abuse that. Um, what I love is that, again, our administration just has that trust. We go back to in the very beginning, right? Just make it happen. Um, right. And so that's what we do. And so if an officer needs to go out on mental health leave, I now get to go straight to their lieutenant or whoever's in charge and say, hey, this officer's out on mental health leave, or I just say they're out on leave. I don't even say mental health. This officer is going to be out this week. They'll be back on Tuesday. And they say, okay, no questions asked. I have nobody that asks any questions anymore. And so, um, you know, the ability to just do that, I think has been huge in, in building that trust, not only with myself, but with the department, because, you know, we code it as um, admin leave because admin leave is something that you can be on admin leave for any number of things, right? Mm -hmm. So if somebody wants to go see why Courtney's out today and my schedule says admin leave, that doesn't mean I'm on mental health leave. And then I have the ability um, through HR to go back on with payroll at the back end and, and they have a special code that they attach to it so that they know that comes out of, of their leave bank. And so um, we worked really, really hard to create a system that wasn't it's not foolproof, but, you know, it's something that keeps it, it confidential. People ask, well, why don't we use sick time? And the reason why we don't use sick time is when you look at going into a specialized position or promotion, you're going to look at how much sick time you've taken. And if you've taken sick time for mental health leave, it could look like you're abusing sick time when really you aren't. And so that's why we thought admin leave was kind of the better code um, to do so. But that's all stored here um, in my office and then through payroll at the payroll department. It's not through our own individual payroll that's that's involved within our department because we, again, want to work really hard on, on confidentiality. And so far, I think we've done a really good job. I don't think anything's leaked that we know of. So That's right. And we worked hard on that as a, as a team. We, we mm -hmm. had a lot of conversations around 
how do we make sure the officers know that we are not sharing that they were on mental health leave? Cause yes. that was a big, so we tried to limit, I know you helped us. You said, how can we limit the number of people that know mm-hmm. we need to keep it as small as possible. And also we didn't want to be sending papers in our office yes. mail saying, yeah. here's their, here's the, because we have to, for those that haven't dealt with the mental health uh, policy, I mean, it was legislation. So if you're in Texas, you should know about this um, and you should have a mental health policy. If you don't, certainly you can contact us and we can share, but most cities I believe have one. It's how it's done would be the question mark. Um, For us, when it goes through you, Courtney, uh, we did do a couple of different things. We did make it broader. The law specified several, like, I don't remember, four or five things that it's specifically, if it's one of these, we broadened it to give discretion if there is a different crisis, so not defined that fit in y'all, your mind, we gave you the autonomy to be able to say that's mental health leave. And then you determine the number of days, uh, hours, all of that. So payroll knows how to properly code it. And we kind of reconcile, I think, either in the payroll at the end of the month, we just, yes. we didn't want to make it burdensome for you running to payroll every day going, here's two more people, you know, <laughs> but you, you, you reconcile with them. So it's, so HR doesn't, anyway, I told them we don't need to know because yeah. I initially wanted it in the file because it's leave. Mm-hmm. And we all agreed on this. It needs to be kept confidential by law. The law yeah. says it should be kept confidential. Mm-hmm. So those are things to consider if you're looking at your mental health policy for our chiefs and our HR individuals uh, listening in and, and the city managers too, knowing there is a very, very specific line of confidentiality that must be followed. I think that also speaks, Courtney, to the culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that you have chiefs that trust that, I think, demonstrates a culture of trust mm-hmm. in a in a department that's usually, you know, you you know, police officers are always. I love police officers because they're straightforward. When they come over, they tell me if they like something or don't like something, and I love that because. I don't like beating around the bush. No guessing. But yes, yes, there's no guessing. But at the same time, they're usually highly um, what skeptical. I guess, you know, they, they, they are skeptical as to what you're doing and why you're doing it because they do want to keep a lot of information private. Uh, and, and so we have to have a culture that recognizes that. And the fact that you can just go to a lieutenant or a sergeant and say, hey, they're going to be off until Tuesday. Yeah. And there's no questions asked and they're not when they get back going, dude, what yeah. are you, you know, or lady, yeah. what are you doing? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think that speaks to a culture that I think they, ha- our listeners need to be aware of that. You, you're going to have to do some legwork if you don't have that culture yes. established and create, create that, which takes a lot longer than a few months, right? Yes, that can take a year or two. It does. All right. And so as we as we move forward, um, what else that you think is that you're passionate about in mental health that we haven't talked about that you'd like to share uh, with our listeners or Randy, any questions you have? I'll let her go first. Okay. I think, you know, my biggest passion is honestly working with our first responders in our internal program. There's nothing more rewarding than, you know, seeing an officer that was maybe struggling that then comes back and says, wow, like, I wish I would have done that sooner. Um, I love that we have a culture that is historically distrusting. And now I get selfies 
from an officer on the couch with their counselor, with their therapy dog and says, look who I got to see today. To me, that is so powerful that, that they would be willing to just send me that. Um, and so I think that, you know, we need to be having more of these conversations. We need to have more people in the mental health field that truly understand first responders, what they go through, what they experience, how to help them, how to relate with them. Um, that's our biggest struggle is finding, you know, people who can work with this team. And so, um, you know, and, and also providing that training, I think is something that is so important and we normalize that it's okay to be okay, but it's also okay to not be okay. And I think those are conversations that are hard to have a colleague of mine that works in another city loves to, he loves to refer to this as brain health and he loves to refer to it as a buffet of options. And when he talks about the EAP, he says, I don't go internally if I want to, to, to go to the doctor or go to the dentist. Why do I have to use a program you know, that's internal, like an EAP, if that's not what I want to do. And so creating a space where it can be individualized and that they can go and, and choose what they want to choose from people who understands that culture. Because like he says too, if I have a back problem, I'm going to go to a back specialist, right? I need to be able to go to a mental health specialist that understands my culture and understands my trauma um, in order to most effectively treat me. So it's a passion. I love that, that we're having these conversations. I love that other organizations are willing to have these conversations and look at starting these programs and how do we embed it. And, you know, we can't do more with less anymore. We have to, we have to match staffing wise with, with where we're at and what we need in order to have effective programs. So describe your go-to inner circle outside of Grand Prairie. So for like personal wellness or well, just, just, just in general, I mean, this, yeah. you, you, you've talked about peer to peer, mm-hmm. you know, we kind of began the conversation about the grant in these nine cities. I mean, I'm suspecting that you've got a contact list that's rather impressive, but is, is there, is there, are there a group of people that are just kind of your go-to people? For, for a variety of things. I mean, give me, give me some sense as a guy that's not in your space, what that looks like and what are these other roles? Who are, who are these people and what expertise are they bringing to the table for you? Yeah. So I have a couple of, of go-tos as far as the mental health field goes. Um, we have some amazing council organizations that are here. Um, Forged in Valor being one of them. They um, they employ former first responders or former military or spouses thereof, um, and they're all licensed professional. They're all licensed counselors in some form or fashion. Um, so they're a huge go-to to me. Um, not only do I go there, my family goes there. <laughs> um, I send you know anybody that I can there because I also am a proponent of. I have to be healthy if I expect our team to be healthy. And so um, I very much practice what I preach. Um, so that's a huge go-to to me. There's a, there's a couple of other organizations. Dr. T is, is um, an expert in this field too. And I've learned so much from her. So I have some, some go-tos professionally, um, some officers from other, other teams, Garland being one of them. Um, just, I, I try to surround myself with people that have the same passion that I do. So we're starting to see agencies that are hiring clinicians. And I sit on a lot of hiring boards now um, and how to hire that because 
the one way to ruin your program is to hire the wrong clinician. You get the wrong clinician in there, you get one shot and one shot only with this, with this profession. And so, um, you know, there is a close knit group of us that do this, that, that we collaborate quite often. Then I also have to have my personal go-tos, right? So, I mean, my husband's a huge support um, for me, my daughter, I'm in a family of helpers. My mom's an ER nurse, my brother's an attorney, my dad's a counselor. So, I mean, we're having these conversations over the dinner table. Um, and then my, my, my team here, I could not do what I do without my team. I have the best team um, here that, that we just take care of each other. We just know, we try to promote a, a culture of, of gratitude and of positivity. And, you know, the other day, my, my other team member, Emily, she was like, Hey, we're going to breakfast. You know, you seem like you're in your head today. You got a big meeting today. Let's go to breakfast. Let's practice. Let's, you know, so we, we try to build each other up and, um, I, I just, I love them so much and I'm so proud of, of this team that we have built here and, and how we try to take care of each other, because if we don't take care of ourselves and we don't take care of each other, nobody else will. You mentioned the peer to peer training. Tell mm -hmm. us, tell us more about that. And I mean, what I can assume what prompted it, but tell us what prompted it and, and what does that look like? Yeah. So historically in this, in this culture, we've had peer to uh, peer support teams. And so these are teams of people who volunteer, who want to go out and, and help each other. Um, and we've provided them with some critical incident stress debriefing trainings, which teach you how to go and do a debriefing after a, a big event. And it's historically a seven step process and it is effective, but it's not the only thing that can be effective. And so but we, we've all used it because it's what we know. And so we've tried to shift away from that and know that, number one, officers don't always want to sit in a circle and go through seven steps and talk about what they saw and what they feel. It's just not what they really want to do. Um, and so we also know that having these conversations with one another as a peer-to-peer -peer level is what's most effective. And so it's a four-hour training that we provide. And what we do is we're teaching you what we call the science of trauma. We're teaching you that trauma stores through your five senses. We're teaching you how to have conversations with one another rather than just walk up to each other and say, hey, you doing okay? Hey, how are you? Because the answer is always going to be yes, I'm okay. Or it's always going to be I'm doing fine. Right. And in reality, sometimes they are, but usually they're not. And so how can we start to have a conversation with one another and be like, hey, man, that call was really hard. What did you see out there? right? And just starting it that way and getting them, and what did you hear? What did you see? Getting them to walk through those five senses about that call starts the healing process immediately. And so teaching them just to how to have that conversation with one another um, or how to just hold that space. If an officer seems to Let's say that their, their productivity has decreased. And instead of just being like, hey, you're being lazy right now, being like, hey, man, I noticed that you're not doing as many traffic stops. Man, what's going on, right? How are things at home? Because as much as we like to say we don't bring our personal lives to work, we do. We're human beings. And so, um, you know, promoting and fostering that communication in a different way is really where the magic is. And then also trying to let everybody know here ways to access resources. It doesn't have to come through me. I don't ever have to know. Um, we're working on creating an app so that at 2 a.m., if they just want to know some things that are available, they can click it on an app. We're working to do that. 
We have some things on an intranet. I send out emails frequently about, hey, remember, these are the resources we have should you need it. Um, you know, that's the one thing fire department's good at. The fire department, they travel together. They go to a call, they come back, they eat together, they sleep together, they do all of these things together. And so they tend to have better conversation than our officers who have to go back into a car by themselves and go to the next call where they don't have anybody to talk to. And so um, that's really kind of the basis behind that peer-to-peer. And it's also reminding people that you already have your own resiliency strategy and what is it and when was the last time you used it? Because if fishing's your thing and you haven't gone fishing in three months, we've got a problem right? Because you're not taking care of you. And so um, that's really the basis behind it and why we want to get everybody through. And how many people, how many people will go through that program? My hope is that we'll get everybody here through it. Awesome. That's my goal. Mm-hmm. And how do you, how do you know on that peer to peer ones that are effective or ones that need a little bit more work? Does it vet itself out because they, the officers just navigate naturally to the ones that they are comfortable with that maybe do a better job because not that's not going to be everybody's niche. Yeah. Some people are really good communicators. Some aren't. Yes. Some hold it in naturally, you know, and they may not want to discuss it. So I, it seems like it would be specific to your kind of personality and your traits that you have naturally as to who might be more effective or less effective at that practice. Is that fair to say? Yes. So we all have our person. We all have that one person that we like to go to. So the theory is if everybody's trained in these concepts and you happen to be somebody's person or your buddy's having a conversation with you, you guys already clearly get along because you're talking, right? Now you can help walk your buddy through it. If that doesn't work, then we have a formalized peer team that has extended training beyond just the full hour peer-to-peer process. And um, I'm really excited about that too, because we just expanded our peer team and it's all voluntary basis. And we have at least doubled the number of people that are interested in doing it in this last year than we've ever had before. So now we're trying to have somebody on each shift. So now I can go to that peer team member and say, Hey, Heard your shift had a tough call last week. Have you checked in on everybody, right? Now I got eyes and ears on every shift. And then we can kind of take the temperature of what's going on there. So if your buddy doesn't want to have that conversation, then maybe somebody from the peer team is willing to have that conversation. Or one of those two people is willing to refer to us and say, hey, can you go check on that officer? Because they really seem to be struggling. And I've tried to talk to them, but I'm not getting anywhere. Do you mind just checking in? And our team is really good about finding a way to just have a conversation that's not, hey, buddy over here is worried about you. What's going on? You know, Um, and so we try to do a lot of natural check ins. But you know what? Who's referring to us the most is supervisors. Hey, can you check on my people? Hey, can you do this? And so they're starting to notice. They're starting to have the conversations. But we also have supervisors that are standing up in, in briefings or roll calls and saying, hey, that program they're talking about, I've used it and it worked for me. And you talk about a game changer when you have a supervisor that's willing to stand up in front of his whole shift and say, hey, I've done this. That's huge. That's more powerful than anything I could ever do or say, um, because it just comes better from each other. And if they're willing to say they've used it, we have people that are now utilizing programs because their buddy has said, I've used it. So that's where the magic is. It's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. I got one last question, Lisa, and then mm-hmm. I'll, I'll let you go with it. So who do you report to? Because this is a city government leadership podcast. So 
I want to know who you report to. And then let's, let's have a, let's have a conversation about what that leadership looks like. And I'm curious about even your leadership journey, because in spite of the fact that you may, well, you certainly started out as pretty much a one man band. And in some cases you kind of sort of still are, but we've heard about a lot of work and a lot of other people and a lot of collaboration and a lot of brand new initiatives that have not been done before. So uh, in keeping with the theme of our show, I think we would, we would be remiss to the audience to not have a conversation about it. Sure. So I now answer directly to an assistant chief um, for the purposes of confidentiality. When I first started, because I didn't do anything wellness or resiliency related, I answered to a lieutenant. Um, And then through the evolution of the programs, they have shifted the organization chart to having me answer to an assistant chief, which again, we're kind of a a unique program because I cannot technically supervise sworn. We're a civil service agency. So my sworn officers answer to a lieutenant. Well, my sworn officers answer to an assistant chief as well, but an assistant chief isn't going to be doing time off requests and things like that. So we kind of have a pseudo lieutenant who does um, some of those things, but we're kind of a self-sustaining unit. Um, thank goodness. But should we have a need, we answer directly to an assistant chief for that reason. Okay. We define here on our podcast, Lisa and I both, you know, leadership is, is basically three things. It's, it's influence. It's a focus on others. And it's doing for others what they can't do for themselves. It doesn't mean that they're idiots. Mm-hmm. They just, in in that moment, maybe they like capacity. Maybe they just like the capacity overall. That's our viewpoint of leadership. I'm curious what your, what your viewpoint is, because you're clearly, you're clearly an influential element in the city of Granbury, Texas, certainly, certainly among the police, the police force. And as Lisa said, clearly otherwise. And I'm not just bragging on you to brag on you, but I mean, there's been a ton of heavy lifting that's been communicated in today's show. Mm-hmm. I mean, none of this is easy. And all of this is a, is a major investment in time and, and other people, you know, to get here. And it's probably seemed like five years and dog years, you know, I would suspect, <laughs> yes. you know, so. I'm curious what lessons you have learned in your own leadership journey. And if you've got any, any advice for people, there are people out there that, you know, they don't have those connections. Mm -hmm. They may not be looking through, through the lens that you've looked through. I mean, you talked about wanting to pick somebody's brain, wanting to ride along, you know, Mm -hmm. this, that, that part of the journey. I'm just curious about that. Yeah. So, I always have a theory that I like to surround myself with people that are smarter than me. I don't like to be the smartest person in the room because I think that's really where I learn. I learn from people who know more than I do, have different experiences than me, look at things differently than me. If I surround myself with only like-minded people, I'm not going to grow. And so I'm I'm constantly seeking that out. Um, I also, I pride myself on being a supervisor that's in the field of my people. 
if I'm not out there doing the work and doing the things that they're doing, I feel like I lose touch with what their challenges are. And so that's really when I, when I started this a long time ago, you know, being in the squad car with an officer and just going on a ride out, going and seeing what their day looks like, asking them, you know, what would be helpful to them because they're the experts. It's not me. We just recently sent out a survey. If you guys could think of mental health, what do you want more of? What do you want to see more of? And then my job is to take what they want and figure out how to implement it. Because even if it's only important to one person, it's important to one person. And stop trying to create a program that's going to be beneficial to everybody because there isn't one. You're going to have to have different programs so that people can pick and choose. I also think intentionality. So something I've really tried to work on um, this year is being intentional. I need to be intentional in my conversations. I need to be intentional in my relationships. I need to be intentional in my time because if I'm not, I'm not going to get anywhere. Right. And so when people talk, I need to listen. I need to see even if they're complaining, they're complaining for a reason. And what is that reason? And then how can we work together to fix that? Because it's not always my problem to fix, right? Sometimes it's their problem, but I need to help guide them in ways that we can either fix it together or lead them to fix it on their own. Because that's really where you're going to have the power and the influence too. If I fix it. That's where the health, that's where the health comes into, into play. You want to keep them healthy in all aspects. Right. And they're more invested if they're fixing it themselves than if I'm trying to fix it for them. So I'm trying to fix it for them. I'm fixing it the way I think it needs to be fixed. And that's not always the way that it needs to be fixed. So I think taking care of yourself, taking care of your team, surrounding yourself with a team. Again, I cannot do what I do without my team. My team is amazing. And I think that it goes to show because other cities come here to spend time with our team to see how they can do it there. And, you know, they try to recruit us all the time. Chief says, he knows he laughs about it. Be like, oh, I got a call from this chief. They're trying to recruit you. And, and Emily, my other, um, my other clinician, she's like, look, we're a package deal, right? You don't get one without the other. That <laughs> That's good to know. That's it, right? We're not going anywhere. But I mean, that's a testament too, because if you don't take care of your people and if your people don't take care of you, then your program's going to fail. And so I try to be really, really intentional um, in those conversations and in those relationships. And I feel like that's what's gotten us to where we are. I don't know. I could be wrong. <laughs> I, we just talked to a, a city manager in our last show, Ben Thatcher, and he um, he talked about being intentional, that you have to. It's mm-hmm. just you have to be intentional because you need to know where you need to go. And to be yeah. intentional, you have to be every day moving in that direction and, right. and making sure it counts, right? Yeah. Every movement counts. So I think that that's a really uh, valid point. Now, I wanted to ask specifically, you lightly touched on resources in the community. Mm -hmm. Um, Are there, can you kind of list, and we'll add it to the show notes of other resources that departments, I would think most would know about it, but maybe some don't, that they can think about if they don't have a mental health professional now, but at least being aware of it and maybe having somebody on their team research them. There's like just different resources that you've had. Can you speak to what you tend to have and what can be helpful to the community? Yes. So um, we use a couple of different vetted resources. Um, 
the group that we partner with is called the readiness group. Okay. And um, they, we, that's who we contracted with initially to do a lot of our trainings and to help set up our peer to peer program. They're amazing. They've got a lot of experience. So that's definitely a go-to for other cities. Um, the counseling organizations that we use now, we currently use forged and Valor. Um, we use Dr. T her group is called first and they partner with all first responders. They've got a very robust wellness team and, and wellness division. And then we use um, an organization called Three for the Love or Three FTL. They also specialize in working with first responders. Um, and then we also use a group um, with equine therapy. And so we're trying to have some different um, options there. So I know that there's a program called Our Watch, and then there's another program called Pause for Reflection Ranch. Um, they both do equine therapy. And then another resource for a city to look at is creating a spouses program, because if you have healthy homes, right, you have healthier first responders. And so we're excited. We're kicking off um, a, a, a group called Behind the Badge. We're going to have a kickoff party in February and invite spouses and families and try to bring in speakers quarterly for them and do some different spouses retreats and things, because again, they're going to notice what's going on in their first responder before we will. And so letting them have access to the same resources that, that their first responder does is going to be essential. So I think those are probably the, the heaviest resources that we have right now. I'm sure I'm forgetting some. So if I am, I apologize, but those are the ones that come to mind off the top of my head. I love the fact that you're doing behind the badge. Uh, that's, I wasn't even thinking of that aspect. But to reach the families um, of those officers seems that it would be critical because I, I I only experienced it very lightly from, again, Brandon being a young officer and having a young wife, brand new, you know, in, at 20, I think at 21, he was an officer learning. Um, and I remember his wife, because he works nights, of course, when you're young officers, you get assigned to the night shift. And always her being fearful and and sometimes having to call us just emotionally yeah. distraught and nothing had happened. She was just worried, you know, pregnant, worried something is going to happen. A death happens in another agency that's on the TV. Yes. And I remember those emotions that I would not have ever thought about mm -hmm. that the families go through just naturally worrying that that could be me. Mm -hmm. That could. So I think that it's really great that you guys are creating creating and developing a program for the family support. Um, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Emily's really going to spearhead that because she's a spouse herself. And so I think she has that level of connection, not only working here, but being the wife of an officer at another agency. And so um, we're excited about it. We're really excellent. Excited. Well, for our listeners, we will get connections. Many of you may have a lot more questions than we've been able to answer today, but Courtney, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing not only your journey, but the journey of mental health uh, service to our officers and our employee family. Uh, I hope it's helped everybody that's listening in. I'm sure they're going to have more questions. This is going to develop more work for you <laughs> uh, from outside the organization. <laughs> but thank you again for, for sharing uh, your experiences uh, and helping them have, get ideas around what they might be able to do in their uh, communities, in their departments. Yeah. Uh, anything else for the good of the group? Randy or Courtney? I'll let her have the last word. <laughs> We're turning okay. it over to you, Courtney. On the spot. Yeah, I don't think so. I just think, you know, please reach out. Like mental health is so incredibly important. And um, 
we do get a lot of agencies that reach out for our policies and, and how we do it. And so if you think about it or you, you want help, please, please, please like reach out to us or, or anybody, because I think that mental health is something that is so important. And um, I just want to see every department have some sort of program to take care of their first responders. That's right. Whether you have a person assigned to it or not, yes. there's, it sounds like there's a lot of different ways you can get and seek help for your officers and your employee family. Yes. Thanks again we'll put, for coming we'll on put, the show. We'll put, we'll put links over how folks can, uh, can bug you and pester you. Perfect. <laughs> we'll add every phone number we have for you, Courtney. Yeah, absolutely. I've got three. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks again, Courtney. I hope everybody, everyone's enjoyed the show. Thanks for watching and listening to Grow Great, a city government leadership podcast. For Lisa Norris, I'm Randy Cantrell. Be well, do good, grow great. The website is growgreat.com.